to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm Alex Fulick, your host, and we talk about all kinds of things related to disaster recovery and business continuity, crisis management, emergency management, and everything in between. Um, I know I always say in every episode, uh, usually at the end, but I'm starting to get to want to say this up front. If there's any topic that you want to talk about and or ideas you want to get out there, then please feel free. Send me an email at info at stone-road.com, and that's the dash sign. Uh, and we'll see about getting you on the show and talk about your new ideas, uh, you know, your, your services, your lessons learned, your experiences. Those are really valuable uh, for, for our listeners out there, you know, people that have gone through things. So in saying that, this week's show, we actually have someone who's uh, got some experiences and wants to share some new ideas and, and thoughts. Um, Mr. Scott Teal from Agility Recovery. Scott, how are you today? Doing very well. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So let's let's give our listeners a little bit of uh, a background on yourself, you know, where you come from, what you do, and how, how you got into this crazy realm of uh, business continuity and disaster planning. Certainly. Well, I've been uh, a marketing professional for about 25 years now and was approached by a firm based in Charlotte, North Carolina called Agility Recovery about uh, seven years ago. And if you'll remember, that was 2010. We were still kind of reeling from what happened in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and people were, you know, really... uh, pretty well focused on business continuity and disaster recovery at the time. And my job when I started with Agility was to, you know, obviously spread the gospel of business preparedness and organizational resilience. At the time, Agility Recovery uh, was a relatively new kid on the block. We were previously a division of General Electric, and they spun that off to a private equity firm and really turned it into a business that allowed small to medium-sized organizations to have some sort of third-party backup vendor for business continuity. It was a previously, uh, you know, unknown segment, and a lot of the largest institutions in the world had internal capabilities related to business continuity and disaster recovery, and the intent behind Agility was to bring that to the smaller businesses out there. And so that's where we started, and uh, since then we've gone from about 400 customers to around 5,000 customers uh, in those past seven years. Wow. I'd like to think that it had something to do with the good marketing that I brought to the table, but I, I think it's probably more to do with the value of the service, to be quite honest. Well, exactly. You know, business continuity and disaster, and you just mentioned it, you know, right after Katrina, it's really in people's mind. And look what's happening right now, you know, uh, in, in Texas and Puerto Rico and, you know, all these Barbuda and all these other places that just went through disasters. Well, you're absolutely right, and, you know, we could probably sit here and hash out all of the lessons learned just from those storms, and, you know, some of those lessons are 
are the same as what we learned after Hurricane Katrina and Sandy and those kinds of things, but they are affecting organizations differently these days, and you know that's that's really the where the rubber meets the road. How are we going to respond to the threats that we're presented with today, and how are those threats evolving? Well, you mentioned lessons learned there, so uh, I, I want to touch on that because you mentioned you know, we're still experiencing some of the things um, from previous disasters. Why do you think that is? Why do you think customers or, or companies or, or states, provinces, governments anywhere, why do you think we never really, really learn from, our pre- from previous disasters? Well, I think we do learn to a certain extent um, really what the potential you know, uh, difficulties may be after these events. The challenge is that business leaders in America these days, and and really the world over, are are so focused on the bottom line, and rightly so. I mean, we all have to pay our bills, and we have to make payroll, and so that's always going to take precedent. But what I think the big takeaway from some of these more recent events uh, may be is that you don't necessarily have to put those priorities on hold, you know, uh, making the next, uh, you know, big contract, getting the next big contract or getting the next big customer or making that next delivery, you can do all those things and still build resilience in your organization. I think another big hurdle that a lot of business leaders, especially the small and medium-sized organizations, have yet to overcome is the idea that business continuity is something only for the largest institutions and only those institutions can afford it. And that, to me, is just a big fallacy that, you know, I try to preach everywhere I go and every conference I attend is that you don't have to spend millions of dollars and tons of hours and, you know, specific employees to this concept. It's really about building a strong company, and this is just part of that. You're investing all this time, energy, and effort in building a great product or a great solution and, and selling that to the world over. But, you know, having a strong business is more than just that one product or solution. It's also the people that make up your institution and the processes and functions within your organization that help you deliver that product or service. And to me, business resilience is just part of that entire process. So let, let's let's jump on that one. Business resiliency. That in some areas, that's kind of a buzzword. You know, people just right. use resiliency for everything these days, or business continuity for everything. You know, so for from agility recover um, agility recovery's perspective, what is resiliency? You know, what is that? Well, at the, at the most basic level, it's obviously protecting your critical operations. And that sounds like an industry term, especially those that, you know, aren't dealing with this every day. But really, if you think about it, there are probably half a dozen or so things that your organization does on a daily basis that allows you to generate revenue, or if you're a public institution, to serve your constituents. And so you have to ensure that those critical operations can continue. Now, I mentioned earlier that I was in marketing. Well, here at Agility Recovery, marketing is not ever going to be considered a critical operation. Our critical operations are allowing our customers to obtain resources at the time of disaster, like generators and diesel fuel and satellite communications equipment. So those are the elements that we are going to prioritize and either invest 
in protecting in terms of mitigation or invest in means to build redundancy. And the other element beyond just protecting those critical operations when you're referring to resiliency as a whole is ensuring the capability of actually executing your plan. During Harvey and Irma, we saw so many organizations that had fairly comprehensive plans in place already. They knew that they were subject to these large-scale regional disasters like hurricanes. However, their plans fell short because they didn't anticipate these back-to-back regional events. And so not only were private organizations and businesses left in the lurch without access to some of the resources they had made assumptions about having access to, we saw the same thing happen with the federal government and their response agencies, uh, as well as NGOs like the Red Cross. Everyone was pushed to the limit. So taking one step backwards to the previous question, maybe that's one of our big lessons learned and big takeaways is that we've got to continue to push the envelope when we start to go through exercises or tests of our strategies and really push these things to the breaking point every single time so that we can have that continual improvement. Otherwise, you kind of rest on your laurels, right? Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, an interesting point there. You said uh, assumptions. You know that when when people are doing these plans, uh, you know they they have all kind of assumptions. How 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 would you address that to someone who says, you know, we have this plan, this is what we're going to do, you know, we have all these assumptions. How would you, you know, uh, with what you just said, how would you address that, you know, with someone who whose plan is based on nothing but assumptions? Well, I, I'll put it this way: if you work for NASA. You never are going to make assumptions that one single component of a space shuttle is going to work 100% of the time because lives are in danger, right? And Mm -hmm. when you look at your business, you need to identify all of those single points of failure. And we do rely on, you know, things like utility providers where we don't have an option to go out there and provide a secondary uh, supplier of that particular service or, or component or, or product. So in those cases, you have to look at your critical operations and understand, and understand what would we do if we had no access to that. A perfect example is uh, Waffle House. If you've heard of this restaurant chain, they're all over the nation, and they're small, almost cookie-cutter, uh, diner-type establishments. And they know that there are going to be situations where each of their locations may be presented with, you know, a situation where they might not have access to water. They may not have access to gas, natural gas to power their stoves or power to to, uh, provide refrigeration. But what they've done is instituted a way to protect the critical operation of serving food by having different stages or different types of menus given each of those scenarios, that they can still serve something, right? They can still provide some kind of, uh, of food sustenance to their customers. Now, they may not be able to always do their, their scrambled eggs and their scattered and smothered and covered uh, hash browns, but they can do other <laughs> things, you know, dry toast or dry bread or just anything to try to keep the doors open and keep their communities or their customers being served. And you have to really take it to that level. If your business is an insurance firm or a bank or a grocer, your community depends on you. And you've spent all this time, energy, and effort building your business and establishing these client and customer relationships. 
you have to protect those at all costs. So I think resiliency really goes back to what is your mission and what makes your organization unique in the industry and protect those things, invest in those things. And when I say invest, I don't necessarily mean money. I mean invest energy and thought into how you're going to protect those things. Now, I can't go through the dozens of different implications that every single organization across the country could face. That's kind of, you could if yourself to death. If this happens, then what do we do? If this happens, then what do we do? But the bottom line is protect those operations. That's interesting. The Waffle House has a plan like that. I haven't heard of too many restaurants themselves doing that. You might hear something about the the head office, you know, in in New York or Toronto or L.A. or something like that. But you don't often hear that you know, there's some sort of a plan in place for the restaurant. And, and I can say that legitimately because in my younger days, a long time ago, uh, I worked in the hospitality industry. And if the power went out or, the, or there was no water, uh, you had to shut the doors, period. Right. Yeah. You know, that, that, there was no resiliency. There was no continuity. You, know, you waited till the water came on or you waited until the power came on. That was it. Well, I can tell you from my own personal experience, like you, I also worked in the food service industry in college. I kind of worked my way through college, and uh, I went to school at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I worked at a, a, an Italian restaurant just up the road in Durham, North Carolina, and a major uh, hurricane came through and actually knocked out power uh, my sophomore year to a lot of the communities around the Durham, uh, Raleigh, and Chapel Hill areas in North Carolina. And it wasn't massive destruction by any means. It just there were a lot of lines down. So a lot of restaurants simply shut the doors. Well, this particular Italian restaurant had a wood-burning oven. And they were able to, believe it or not, actually make pasta and pizzas consistently without power and serve some of the first responders and the line workers that were in the area. And, you know, they got a nice little citation from the, the mayor of, of Durham, North Carolina, and a lot of just community recognition for their efforts throughout the course of that disaster. That's great. That's a great news story. You know, kudos to everyone and yourself involved with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> my days, you know, as I said, we had to close the, the doors. You know, we couldn't serve anything. We could probably finish cooking what we had, you know, and that's about it. But couldn't yep. start anything new. And mine goes back far enough where we had the old uh, uh, Visa slips and Master Charge, actually Charge X was the word uh, back then, wow. where you had the little machine that went back and forth, you know, with the carbon yeah. copy over the card, and you hand wrote, you know, that that was the only way we could, you know, make sure that our customers were still getting, you know, billed and pay their bills, you know, if they were done, you know, obviously we wouldn't do that to people who we haven't served yet, but, you know, yeah. that, that was how we had to keep going. <laughs> you know? Well, you bring up a great point. I mean, we're so reliant on the communications and the digital currency that we rely on for every single transaction these days. When's the last time you saw one of those roller devices where you swipe it back and forth and you actually get a physical imprint on the, the, you know, the, the copy paper of an actual credit card? Yet hardly happens anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do know of a restaurant here, uh, um, that I uh, frequent, and they actually have one of those machines in their back office, hidden up on top of the shelf, covered in dust because they never have to use it. Um, but they so far, <laughs> but it's up there, and you know some of the younger people just kind of look at me and go, "I have no idea what you're talking about." And I'm going, "You'll see it. Don't worry." <laughs> 
So on that note, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We're talking with Scott Steele from Agility Recovery and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My Favorite Coffee Story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulk. And this week, we're talking with Scott Teal from Agility Recovery. And we're talking about uh, resiliency. We're talking about some great lessons learned and some contingencies. And uh, Scott's been giving us some fantastic examples and, and points to consider in uh, you know our businesses and what we need to uh, consider. Scott, we we left. We were talking about uh, resiliency and some of the su- success stories that uh, you you know of and you've even been a part of. Uh, I was wondering if we could kind of flip that a little bit and think about you know what are some of the roadblocks to resiliency? You know what what hurdles are there to becoming a resilient organization? You know that you've encountered and maybe some examples. Certainly. Well, I think we alluded to this a, a moment ago, and that was the the ability to actually execute your plan. And what we saw during uh, the back-to-back disasters of uh, these two hurricanes in Texas and Florida was access to commodities and recovery assets was very, very limited. We were trucking in fuel and generators from multiple states away. And what that did was cause a delay in recovery time for those people who chose to procrastinate a little bit and maybe not pre-deploy assets 
in advance of these storms. Um, but really, the, the, the bigger concept here is, you know, where are those single points of failure in your plan? And, you know, is that going to provide you with a situation that you're unable to execute, even if you have a decent plan in place? So you have a generator on site at your office. Fantastic. That's great. But say it's powered by diesel fuel. Well, if you don't have multiple diesel fuel vendors lined up, that could potentially be a point of failure. We saw this during Hurricane Harvey in Houston. Many of the ports were shut down, and a lot of the fuel distribution points were also shut down because of either flooding or power. So many of the local vendors that typically could be your first on-call person to bring over a, a delivery truck full of diesel fuel, they were underwater. And so people were having to go up to Dallas and, you know, even further north to get vendors. And during times of disaster, that is not when you want to be sourcing vendors, trust me. And so having those multiple vendors set up in advance is one area where we saw potential failure, um, but certainly a lot of difficulty. The other element that I think was one of the biggest takeaways, and we saw this a lot in Florida during Hurricane Irma, was lack of preparedness of your actual employment base. So many organizations were relying on individuals that either were really the point persons for their planning and their execution, and those folks were evacuated, or they were unable to reach the location that they needed to get to in order to begin or initiate the actual recovery. So helping your employees actually prepare at home, making sure you can maintain communications with your employees, especially those critical staff that you're going to rely on in the immediate minutes, hours, and days after some sort of incident can be critical because that is essential to actually executing your plan. Once again, the area where we see a lot of people making those assumptions that could potentially derail your whole recovery effort. Scott, you mentioned that uh, sometimes there were problems with people. Is that because they were caught in disasters themselves or is it because there was a failure to identify backup people, you know, you, you know, people that are sit side by side in the same situation all the time, you know, it's not necessarily good to have them as your backup. So w- what what caused the, the, the people problem outside of them not being able to participate? Well, communications, you know, is, is really the cornerstone or the, the linchpin of all of these recovery efforts. You have to be able to communicate across departments and with your vendor network. And so that was a big challenge. Um, but also training. You know, a lot of folks just make the assumption that everybody's going to know exactly what they should do. A lot of organizations rely on work-from-home strategies. Well, have you tested that? Do your employees know how to access their virtual desktops from home? Uh, do they have the right login credentials? Do they have the right Internet connectivity? Um, you know, and then, as, I'm, as you just mentioned, are you relying on one single person to execute critical elements of your recovery? And if so, have you cross-trained others within the organization? During Hurricane Harvey, so many uh, of the, the individual homeowners and citizens of the areas around Houston were impacted at home. They were very unlikely to head to the office the next day for sure because they're too busy trying to restore their homes and get you know, find a place for their family to live for the next few weeks. And so, you know, who is going to step up to the plate and, and, and help out at the office if one person or another who's responsible for critical elements is unavailable? We saw a few of our customers turning to retired employees who had at least some basic in, information and basic knowledge of 
the organization and asking them to come in on a temporary basis. We also saw some of our customers turning to vendors and suppliers who had intimate knowledge of their organizations and could step in and provide maybe some administrative roles, at least on a temporary basis. So, you know, you have to have, again, that that could be a potential single point of failure. So you have to look to maybe other institutions to come in and help out during these times. The other thing we saw is especially for organizations that have hourly wage employees, if you close your doors for a period of four or five days, maybe longer, like two weeks, a lot of those hourly wage employees are going to maybe be forced to look elsewhere for work. And if they leave your uh, company behind, will they ever return? And so in those cases, we saw some of our customers losing up to 60% of their workforce within a matter of two to three weeks. That is a massive cost to the organization to have to go out and find new uh, employees, train those employees, all the while trying to recover from a major natural disaster. And that just presents additional layers of complexity and delays and just really massive difficulty when it comes to overcoming these types of events. Well, you, it's interesting. You came back, you started on a training and your one of your last points there was back to training again. So how would you suggest successful ways to train your employees? I know you mentioned um, cross-train, but are there other avenues that you could actually get you know, employees to become aware and knowledgeable of you know, their potential role? you know, um, to, to be involved in restoration recovery efforts that they might not normally do on a normal day-to-day, you know, a part of their role. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is really boils down to the fundamentals of testing your plan, execu- uh, or excuse me, exercising your plan on a regular basis. Because if you involve across your entire organization all these different personnel that you are planning to rely on during a time of recovery, they're inevitably going to get some of that what we call muscle memory, right? They're going to get that understanding of what they need to do. They're going to get that practice they need so that they can remember what they need to do. Trust me when I tell you they are not going to have a full copy of your recovery plan in a three-ring binder on their dresser at home. And if the the event happens overnight, are they really going to know step-by-step down that checklist what to do? Probably not. So you need to go through and exercise those elements. Now, a lot of people hesitate when it comes to that because they have to take their employees off the production line or out of the production environment. But here's the thing. If you have a consistent process of tests or exercises or even like tabletop uh, discussions of what would we do in this scenario versus that scenario, these are the types of conversations that can take place over a catered lunch at the office one day, or maybe ask everyone to come in half an hour early on a Friday and you'll serve donuts and coffee, and we'll just talk a little bit about our plan. What would we do if? These do not have to be full day-long or week-long exercises that take a ton of your employees out of the production environment. Instead, they can be fairly simple, but at least spend the time talking through it because that will help everyone better understand their responsibilities at the time of interruption. The other thing, as I mentioned, is cross-training. So I brought up the example earlier of myself being in the marketing department here at Agility Recovery. Well, I'm actually also trained to take calls from our customers during times of disaster and at least process the initial information that we need to retrieve in order to start the recovery process for those customers. I am not a recovery expert. 
I am not an operations team member, but at least I know how I can help out in times of disaster. And I know my role. I know exactly how to log into the system. And we do at least monthly, if not more frequent, tests what happens if. And so that just creates essentially what we like to call a culture of preparedness in our organization. And unless you are building a company that has that culture of preparedness, inevitably, inevitably there will be some fall-off on people's understanding of what they're required to do at the time of disaster. Well, that, that's an interesting point with the cross-training and yourself being, you know, um, a light trained light, I guess it would be, on how to do, yeah. you know, so answer phone calls. I'm wondering what your do you think that by doing that, uh, you know, cross training various people or even having these um, uh, thirty minute coffee and donut, uh, I guess breakfast and learn <laughs> type sessions, yeah, uh, you know that you can maybe potentially uh, proactively identify gaps in plans and come up with new ideas from other people. You know, if someone who's never been involved before and said, this is what we're going to do, they may be able to turn around and say, well, don't forget, you have to consider this. And hey, what about that? And, you know, there's other opportunities there. Do you you think that's worth worthwhile? I mean, absolutely. Alex, Agility's been around for 28 years, and we've recovered thousands of organizations after 9-11 and Katrina and Sandy and, uh, you know, wildfires in Canada. You better believe we're still learning every single time we sit down and talk things through. We are a growing company. We're constantly hiring new people, and they come from different industries with different ideas. And I got to tell you, I was sitting at home at 2.30 in the morning, and I live in Denver, Colorado, so that's 4.30 in the morning, East Coast time, speaking to a customer in Florida about their power recovery with a generator and furiously writing down notes of things that I was taking back to our chief of operations and our after-action report. You absolutely will learn something. This is the purpose of a, purpose of a test exercise. Talk things through. Push the envelope. You know, a lot of people don't like the term test because it connotates a pass or fail. They, they mm-hmm. like exercise better because you want your plan to fail. If you're not pushing the envelope and pushing your plan to the point of failure, you're therefore not improving it. And by putting everyone around a table and talking through these what-if scenarios, you are inevitably going to find the areas that you could potentially improve on the next round of testing and the next round of, of disasters that may befall your well, I like your point there about um, testing the plan and you want to find things that are wrong. I completely agree with you on that because I always think of if I'm testing my plan and I find nothing wrong, all I've proven is whatever scenario I'm using is that I'm okay as of that day. Under that situation, under these circumstances, I really haven't proven that my plan works under multiple situations, just that one. You know, so you want right. to find you want to find gaps. Well, I can give you a perfect example. I mean, every business owner out there, you know, has some level of responsibility to their organization to keep it afloat and keep employees paid. And you may think that as a business leader of either a small or mid-sized organization, you don't have the, the knowledge or the expertise or the wherewithal that some of the largest institutions in the world may have. Well, it just so happens that Agility, one of our customers, is one of the largest retail organizations in the world, and they learn something every single time they go through a disaster. And, 
you know, they uh, they may need a generator, for example, and they learn that the, the type, style, and size of generator they've identified in their plan isn't necessarily accurate. So they went back and decided to go and assess the needs, the power requirements of every single one of their facilities worldwide based on that, that learning. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is not limited to just small organizations who have never experienced a disaster. Even those organizations that are massive in comparison and have multiple facilities all over the place continually learn and improve, and that's really the intent of these exercises. Yeah, I agree completely. And the the other piece I just w- wanted to touch base on is when when you're talking about plans, uh, you know, are you, are you talking about going through, you know, you mentioned earlier the binder sitting on someone's dresser. Are you talking about going through that plan or really kind of letting everyone go through, this is what's happened, guys, go to it and see what happens? Or is it going through the binder page by page and finding the gaps no. that yeah. Which, which do you which do you prefer? Th- yeah, that's a common misnomer. You certainly don't want to just go to your plan. We always try to suggest scenarios to our customers, and that scenario typically, you know, has several layers that you go through. So the first part of the scenario is you have a building fire, and it's on the weekend. And it's on a Saturday, and nobody knew about it, nobody was there, and nobody finds out until later in the day when the fire department calls. Well, then a couple days go by, and you learn that uh, the uh, you know electrical contractor that you had written down in your plan to come out and connect your, your generator to a temporary facility, it's a one-man shop on their honeymoon, and so you can't use that person. Who are you going to call next? And then you learn that your fuel vendor is no longer servicing organizations in your area, so you have to find a new fuel vendor. So we go through these scenarios to try to present these little hiccups. Throw in a monkey wrench in your plan. Say, listen, I know that your, your plan calls for obtaining a generator after six hours of downtime. Well, what if the generator yard was flooded that you have in your role deck? Do you know another generator yard you can call to or another provider? And that situation actually happened in Houston. I mean, one of even one of Agility's primary vendors of uh, generators, all of their generators were flooded because their generator yard was located one, near one of the bayous there. And so we had to turn to another vendor. That's an example of where we had to have that redundancy in place in order to perform the level that we had to as an organization that recovers businesses. The same can be said for any other business. That was a critical function of ours. They have to be able to protect their critical functions. So it's a little bit of both then, isn't it? If if it's you're tailoring tests and scenarios to the 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 client themselves, you know, what what you do, but at the same time you also have to validate your your contact lists, you know, the things that you do have written down. You know, like like you said, you know, the electrician or or you know, the person that cleans the carpets or whatever the case may be. You kind of you have to do a little bit of both, don't you bring up a very important point. I mean, chances are, during times of disaster, you may have written into your plan, but you may just have to look outside the four walls of your business and engage with vendors. And those vendors should not be foreign to you. They should be new people. You should have an existing relationship with those organizations. You should know who to call. You should know how to reach out to them on the weekends or on holidays. Who is my 24-hour contact? And it's not always a vendor that's tied to your actual recovery. Uh, it's not always a vendor that is really focused on business continuity. It could be simply reaching out to 
UPS or FedEx or whatever freight transport company and tell them, please, to our facility, it's in a flood zone. Do you know how to reach those organizations and stop deliveries, you know, on the weekends or on holidays? What's the process in order to do so? Is it even possible? You know, that's just one small example, but those vendors become a very, very important part of your overall plan. And so making sure that you are thinking through who they are, how to reach them, what are their protocols, their service level agreements in order to serve you if they experience an interruption. That's another big takeaway that we could probably spend another hour on, but you know, you don't have to be in the immediate impact area to have your business interrupted. It could be uh, you know, a disruption to the vendor network or supply chain. Well, that's true. That's a good point. Um, I'd like to actually come back to that. We're just going to take a break, and I'd like to uh, touch base on that one um, because I've got questions on that for sure. (laughs) We're talking with Scott Steele from Agility Recovery, and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer-Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Um, we're talking today with Scott Teal from Agility Recovery. And in our last episode, our last segment, rather, we were talking about lots of uh, ideas on testing and things we need to identify and consider. And just Scott, just before we went away on break, you mentioned uh, a great point that I, I want to uh, talk about more, that when a disaster occurs, 
you don't necessarily have to be in that disaster zone to be affected or impact impacted, you know, by what's going on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like how, how I could be, you know, in Toronto, but affected by what's going on in Houston. Right. Well, we obviously, all businesses rely on a, a series of vendors and suppliers, even if we're not in the manufacturing sector. I like to say that we still have a supply chain. I mean, I'm speaking to you on a cell phone right now provided by a national carrier. And so if there's an option to that one national carrier, all of a sudden this phone call is going to go dead. However, here at Agility Recovery, we cannot really have that single point of failure. And so we have to have multiple vendors of cellular or mobile device uh, connectivity. So <clears throat> that way, if there is some sort of interruption, like, for example, during Hurricane Sandy, in uh, the, the lower Manhattan area, a major switch environment for Verizon went down, and I believe the other two carriers had some inter- carriers had some inter- but that was the one that made the news. And so a lot of organizations who weren't even in the immediate area, they weren't even affected by the floodwaters and storm surge from Hurricane Sandy had their communications go down. Another example that a lot of folks may remember is the Fukushima earthquake in Japan. That disrupted a major supply chain for a lot of the, the biggest car manufacturers in the world. I think Toyota was one of the ones that uh, were very upfront about the fact that their supply chain was going to be interrupted for a while and the delay in delivery of new vehicles because of that. So obviously we are a global economy and have to, have to uh, act as such. And when it comes to that, what do we do? Well, maybe you go out and you find secondary vendors in these areas. To necessarily do business with them on a regular basis, but at least establish lines of credit or create an account with those organizations so you're not doing it at the time of disaster. Well, it's in- interesting what you were just saying. It reminds me of um, uh, Mr. Uh, Harold Drager, the president of the International Emergency Management Society. He says, you know, we need to act locally and but think globally. You know, so right. you're, you're, you've got your local, you know, vendors, et cetera, et cetera. But you need to consider, you know, the, the wider, you know, scope of what could happen, you know, uh, through your supply chain, you know, upstream and downstream. Correct. And I mean, these days with the advent of crowdsourcing on the Internet and, you know, overseas vendors for um, digital uh, elements of how we do business these days, even the smallest institutions are, are sometimes relying on organizations overseas. And so you're absolutely right. You have to think larger than just your immediate community. Well, and that reminds me of something else. Uh, I did some work for a company a, a couple of years ago. And uh, as you were talking about multiple vendors and suppliers and partners, et cetera, what we ha- put in place is, or what we were directed uh, is, you you could have, and we'll use a, an example like an electrician. You could have your local e- electrician on your 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 vendor contact list, but the next one you had to have at least two, and the other one had to be out of town. Correct. In case something happened, you know, and that the the local was not available. Absolutely, and, and hopefully to build on that point, it's not always remember, it's not always the the organizations that you're going to rely on at the time of disaster to help with the actual recovery. Think of your payroll provider, your attorney, your CPA, um, you know, your, your financial advisor. Um, these are organizations that are very deadline-oriented, and you know, Uncle Sam doesn't always give you a 
a, uh, a postponed tax uh, submission deadline just because you had a building fire. Um, so make sure that those organizations are um, folks that you know how they are going to serve you if they have a interruption. You may not necessarily be able to go out and find a secondary vendor, but you want to understand what is their recovery plan? What is their business continuity strategy? And have they outlined exactly how they plan to serve your organization if they experience an interruption? And again, it doesn't have to be adversarial. You don't have to go to your vendors and say, give me your plan or tell me exactly how you're going to work. Instead, look at it as a a partnership opportunity. Maybe you can help each other. Maybe you can share office space or resources at time of interruption so that both businesses can remain resilient in the face of these types of events. Um, To me, it's an opportunity to just further enhance the relationship between your business and theirs and show some some commitment to the fact that you both want to progress the nature of your business and both grow and, and well, it's it's a good point that you bring up. I know from a fact that uh, working with uh, currently working with a financial institution here in Canada, that on some transactions, when one bank goes down, uh, one of the other banks here in the country can actually uh, perform some of the activity for the bank experiencing the disaster. So, right. you know, it, and they, you know, they can all do that amongst themselves. I don't know if that's the case down in the, the, the United States at all, but I know up here that can happen, you know, and I think that's fantastic because then to your point, you know, you're building relationships, you know, you're all in it together, you know, when something happens. Yeah. And I mean, we even saw this in, in both Irma and, and Harvey where competitors, banks that were literally across the street from one another that you would think for all intents and purposes are trying to steal business away from each other, actually work together to try to recover quickly after the disaster because they recognize their value to the larger community. They are the the keystones of their local economies, and they have to be up and running for the daily deposits from their commercial customers, and they have to be up and running so they can provide uh, ATM cash withdrawals. There's so many organizations who swipe credit cards because they had no power or connectivity. And so it became a cash-only society, and banks had to be able to distribute cash. And so we saw some banks uh, sharing cash vendors back and forth so that they could maintain some level of inventory of cash to distribute to their customers. So you're, you're absolutely right. Everybody needs to work together during these large-scale regional events. Uh, it, you've got to get your communities back up and running. It's best for everyone involved. Uh, and another point I just want to add to to that, the we had a situation where um, <clears throat> people weren't sure, you know, if if we go down, we've got to you know spend millions of dollars to have this, you know, backup system put put in place and things like that. And someone just suggested, well, why don't we just call this place and ask them what they would do, you know, if we had a disaster, you know, uh, to your point. And so we did, you know, there was three or four of us in the room and we talked to this uh, company and the, the company just said, well, we will just, we'll withhold this and, you know, we'll give you a grace period of, you know, 24 hours, you know, to do the, get the basics. And we just kind of looked out the, uh, at each other in the room, dumbfounded, like, wow, yep. you know, if we hadn't made this phone call, we would have, we would have been spending tons and tons of money. <laughs> 
Well, let's let's stick with that for one more second, Alex, because you bring up a great point. All you had to do was make a phone call, right? Well, one thing that we find a lot of our business, uh, private business owners not doing is engaging with their larger community. There are so many people in your community that are invested in making sure that your business remains afloat. Think of all of your local representatives at the city, county, uh, state, and you know territory level that want your business to succeed. And chances are there's an emergency management arm of your local municipality that is also invested in keeping you afloat and keeping you in business. And so we found in uh, one particular example up in South Dakota, we recovered a 250-person call center in a local municipal um kind of uh, facility, like a, I guess one of these halls that they might do a, a city meeting or something like that. And they set up the entire call center there because the mayor of that town understood how critical it was that those 250 people keep their jobs. Now, that's a unique example because of the large size of the organization, but if you reach out today and make a few phone calls to a local fire marshal or local emergency management authority and understand how are they going to respond to certain events, that may help you build your plan. You also may be able to understand what are the primary threats you should consider in your area. Maybe you're new to the area like I am here in Denver, Colorado. I just moved from Charlotte uh, earlier in the year. I still don't quite understand how I'm going to drive around in the snow this fall, but, you know, <laughs> I'm going to learn and uh, I'm going to figure it out. Well, if I'm a business owner, you need to do the same thing. Learn and, and network and get to know people and establish those relationships. I remember Craig Fugate, uh, who used to be the, the director of FEMA prior to the new administration here in the States, he said that at the time of disaster is not when you want to be exchanging business cards. And that couldn't be more true. That's true. Yeah, you know, you, you know, and and back to an earlier point you had about assumptions. You know, the only assumption you'll prove in a disaster is that all your assumptions are wrong. So you don't want to be changing <laughs> business cards either. You know, so that that that's a a good example. So we only have a, a about two or three minutes left. So can you give us um, some quick top ten? You know, your top three, three or four tips that you know our listeners could take away with them. You know, things that they should. Uh, could start doing, you know, tomorrow. Absolutely. The very first number one that is my easy answer question every single time that is please know in advance your power requirements. This is a very simple process. Call up your electrician today when it's nice and sunny outside and understand what phase is your electrical service. What voltage is it? Do you have, uh, you know, a specific type of power generation facility that you need? Do, what size generator do you need? And how, how would you connect the generator? Because trust me when I tell you, you can delay the actual recovery of your business when you're facing a long-term power outage by days, if not longer, if you don't know the answers to those questions. Now, your, your emergency plan may not call for obtaining a generator right away, but those, that same network of electricians is going to be stretched very, very thin at the time of disaster, especially if it's a regional event. So if you know that information ahead of time, you know exactly what you need to communicate in order to obtain a generator to, to power up your business. Um, the second big mm-hmm. takeaway that we've seen is preparing employees. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I can't think of a better way to show your employees that you care than expressing the need for them to be safe at home and help their families prepare. 
it's good for them, but it's also good for your business. And it's very easy to do. You can download resources from government websites, uh, the American Red Cross, uh, the Canadian Red Cross that can help your employees better prepare their families at home. And if they are better prepared at home following a disaster, they're more likely to return to work and help your business recover. Those are the two big takeaways that we always share, and they absolutely were proven true once again following these major disasters we've seen recently. I think those are two uh, key ones, the power requirements and prepare, preparing employees. You know, their you know their their lives you know are more important than you know a desk. So you know, Absolutely. empower them to to be a part of the whole building process and the the testing and exercising process, whatever verbiage you want to use there, but make them a part of it. You know, don't keep them Create out and then ex- and then expect them to know what to do it when it happens. Right. Yeah. Well, on that, we have come to our time allotted for this show. I want to thank Scott uh, from Agility Recovery. Scott, do you have a website that maybe people could check out? Actually, uh, me, is Agility's website where you can learn more about what our business is and what we do. But we have a, a ton of free resources available at a website called preparemybusiness.org preparemybusiness.org. There are dozens of downloadable checklists and educational resources that are free, and there's absolutely no obligation. And uh, we just like to share that information because it's in our values and our mission to make our world better prepared for the next event. That's fantastic. That's preparemybusiness.org, correct? Correct. Great. Well, we've come to the end of our show. Thank you, Scott, for all your insight and uh, examples and uh, tips you've given us. And thanks, everyone out there. And we'll join uh, um, our next guest next week. And take care and be prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.